I'm 25 years old. I looked at him and I said, I don't have the experience to do this. And he said, I know you don't, but I know that you're hardworking and you're resourceful and you're going to figure it out. And I'm going to give you a couple people to lean on as resources. And so he you know, had his ops person, for example, spend significant time with me. And he pointed me to other people around the company. But I share that experience because that was such a pivotal moment for me. Just a classic case of a leader being willing to make a bet on someone who's high potential, who hasn't done the job yet, but had some characteristics, and take a big risk. It was a fantastic opportunity and experience for me. Hi, I'm Jubin, operating partner at Kleiner Perkins, and I'm excited that you're tuning into Grit, a podcast that sits down with amazing leaders every week to discuss what it takes to create, build, and scale world-class organizations. The goal of this is not for it to be a highlight reel of how successful my guests are, rather a candid exploration of how hard it is, both personally and professionally, to build history-making companies. Speaking of incredible companies, we don't do sponsorships on the show, so if you're inspired by the stories of my guests, My call to action is to reach out and let's find a great home for you in the Kleiner portfolio. Erica, welcome to the show. Thank you. Great to be here. I do all of these the exact same way. I'll start. I read your background to you. You tell me how I do. We'll go from there. Okay. Started at Dartmouth and you got a degree in Spanish and Latin American studies. That's right. Then you went to Oracle. Oracle Direct was where you started. Is that the BDR program? Did that even exist? So it was called DMD when I joined Direct Marketing Division, which is kind of a misnomer. And it was all inside sales. So yes, it included BDRs or SDRs. We called it Direct Response at the time. And then you could progress into different levels of inside sales roles. You quickly made your Latin American studies degree work for you. You became the managing director for Latin American inside sales. You did four years in, I think, generally South America, but maybe specifically Buenos Aires. That's right. And I didn't jump into a managing director role. I moved to Buenos Aires when I was 23, Mm -hmm. sight unseen, to start a BDR team. And then it it grew from there. But I spent two years living in Buenos Aires and two years in Miami. Buenos Aires is my favorite city in the world. It is. In the world. It's incredible. Do you not feel that way? It's incredible. It's amazing. I lived there. I loved it. It was really hard to come back. There's things about that culture that I am absolutely obsessed with. Like what? So number one. We're going to digress. This is a major tangent here, but it's going to be awesome. Okay, let's go. Number one, the climate is perfect. It kind of reminds me of San Diego. Yeah. Number two, the people are very proud of their culture and heritage. Yes. Yes. And that trickles down to the way they think about their food, their soccer teams, their relationships, and really everything in between. They're very passionate people. Very passionate and very warm. Very warm. And I like to think of myself as passionate. I give a shit. Whatever I'm in, I'm in all the way. And so the spirit of that warms my heart. People are great looking. Food is unbelievable. Just like across the board. Fantastic. Fantastic. Yes. I think it's one in three men see a therapist, which I think is amazing. It might even be higher than that. Okay. There is like a big culture around therapy. Yes. In maybe Argentina, but definitely in Buenos Aires. Yes, for sure. That I think is awesome. There is no shame in that, in their culture, and I really admire that. I think we should have more of that here. The nightlife is amazing. The history is amazing. I love that place. So then you came back stateside. Yes. To become the VP of Oracle Direct, formerly known as DMD. Correct. Then you went to become the group VP of CRM on... These big companies have these crazy titles. I know. All these letters in front of the VP. Like, what does it really mean? Well, there's so many people, they got to start making up more letters. (laughs) That's right. You're going to be there soon. That's Um, right. Then you became the, whatever, CRM on demand for North America, then the group VP of SaaS applications. And I say whatever, but I don't mean to discount why this was formative for you. Yeah. Which was SaaS. That's right. And CRM. That's right. CRM was the first SaaS. Yes. 2006, Oracle selling SaaS. That's Mm -hmm. right. We'll come back to it. So you had a good run there. It ended up being a long run, 17 years, 16 years. Almost. You ended up building the inside sales team up to 600 plus employees. Then you went to live person, spend a couple of years there, EVP of global sales, EVP of field operations. 
Then you went, became an advisor to Optimizely. Ilya, my partner, is actually uh, was on the board there. Cool, fun fact. And then you went to, did you go straight to New Relic from there? I did, okay. April 2014. Okay, and you did five years there. About five and a half. That's right, that makes sense. Okay, and so you were the SVP of global enterprise sales. This was at a time when New Relic was not doing a lot of enterprise sales. That's right. You did a year of that, then you became the EVP, success and sales globally, then the EVP of worldwide sales and success, then the chief revenue officer, and then as of October of 2019, you became the president of Confluent. That's right, yeah. How was that, okay? Yeah, it's pretty good. Not bad. Yeah. Can I tell you something else? I just, I can't not tell you. Sure. So with my guests, I have kind of a hit list of companies okay. that all said no to me as a BDR when I was starting my career. Mm-hmm. And more often than not, they always show up somewhere on these resumes. And every time they do, I got to get it out. Like, I got to say something about it because it still hurts. Like, I still wear that L. Oracle's on the list. You were pitching to Oracle? You were trying to sell Oracle something or you were trying to get a job with Oracle? I was trying to, be, I was trying to become a BDR. It was probably on your team. You probably, you might have blackballed me. <laughs> I don't know. It was a while ago. And uh, nonetheless, they're on my, like, feel shitty list. Well, look at you now. Well, Look what Oracle missed out on. <laughs> yeah, just sitting here podcasting. That's really what my mother hoped I would be doing with my career. <laughs> Okay, cool. We're past Oracle. Are we good? I had We're to, good. I had to get that off. Did my, that feel I, good? Felt, Do you feel better? Okay. Okay. Good. There's a couple other things that I want to mention. You were uh, on the board of Amplitude. Yes. Matt Hines. Yes. Former guest of the show. Great. Love it. Your CRO at That's Amplitude. Right. That's right. Great dude. Awesome guy. You've been on the Amplitude board for a year and a half. Then you are also on the board and a founding LP involved in the formation process of Operator Collective. That's right. Which is a really cool thing, by the way. It is super cool. Super cool. Yes. It's a fund. It's a VC fund. 77% of the membership has never invested in tech. 90% are female. 40% are people of color. And they're all folks that are in industry, operators. All operators, exactly. Very cool. Yeah, it is. It's fantastic. And then lastly, Dartmouth on the board, giving back to your alma mater. That's the lineup. Um, okay, good. So you were one of the guests that everyone said you got to get Erica on. So I'm really excited to be doing this. Well, thanks um, for having me. It's great to be here. I am very happy to have you. What was conversation like for Erica at the dinner table growing up? Gosh, conversation at the dinner table. You so, didn't prep for that. You looked at me like no, a deer in the I didn't. Eyes. I'm thinking back. So I have one brother. He's two years younger. Grew up with mom, dad, and brother. I'm a native Californian. I grew up in the Bay Area in the East Bay. And dad would come home from work. He was an actuary with Coopers and Librand. And we'd have, the four of us would have dinner around the table. And it was the classic, like, how was work today? And kids, what'd you do at school today? And kids eat more salad, like eat the healthy stuff. And it was pretty good. I definitely grew up with a good example of family sharing dinner together until my brother and I got busier with sports and stuff. And then it was a little more catch as catch can. Say that, what was the expression? Catches catch can? Yeah, I guess I'm full of them today with all oh, these no, like, no. new it's, words and a, expressions. No, no, my, my thing is that I don't know idioms because I'm Persian. My mom was a first generation immigrant, which means she didn't know idioms. Okay. And idioms are taught to you if you grew up in the East Bay at the dinner table with an American true. family. All right. I didn't get them. So anytime I hear an idiom that I like, I have to interject. Yeah. I was asked to ask you, how do you keep focused on sales while being such a nice person? That was- <laughs> That's really funny. I don't even know how you answer that. No, it's actually a great question because it's an important part of my coming into my authentic leadership style. I am a nice person. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I'm deeply competitive and incredibly achievement oriented. And so figuring out my kind of leadership brand is how can I balance being a nice person, but also leading a world-class team that's high performing and holding people accountable in the way that you need to do, I kind of had to find my authentic style because not everyone in my position is perceived as being so nice. I thought this was really cool. You were named after your father. Yes. Can you tell me more? So his name was Eric, not Erica, Yeah. um, but I am named after him. And he was an incredible influence for me growing up. And you asked about conversations around the dinner table. My dad from very early days was very much a coach and a mentor and the kind of dad who would ask a lot of questions, I'd go to him seeking advice and he would respond with a question, you know, well, how do you feel about this? And what do you think about that? 
And he really taught me to break down problems. At the time, it was frustrating because, you know, when you're a kid going to your parent with questions, sometimes you just want them to tell you the answer. You know they know the answer, and he would never tell me the answer. He would just ask me more kind of probing questions to help me with my thought process. But he was an incredible influence on me. And sadly, he died of cancer 21 years ago when he was 54. And so that was a really a big moment in my life dealing with that loss and just very hard for our family. But I'm so grateful for the relationship I did have with him and what he modeled for me as a parent and as a person, as a professional. And you were at Oracle when he passed? Yeah. I was living in Buenos Aires for part of the time when he was, he was diagnosed with male breast cancer when he was 50, which I don't know if you know this, it's very rare. About one in 1,000 cases of breast cancer are male. And he was diagnosed when he was 50, and then he sought treatment, went into remission for about two years, and then it came back, and he died when he was 54. And at the time, I was between Buenos Aires and Miami, but coming home to the Bay Area really frequently to see him. Mm. It was a bit complicated. I was on the road all the time. Like, I'd get home to my apartment in Miami, and the power would be out because I'd forgotten to pay the bill, and because I'd been between traveling in Latin America and being home to see my dad. It was a tough time personally, but I, you know, like I say, I'm just in tons of lessons I could get into from having the relationship I did with my dad, as well as just dealing with the loss of him. And uh, so just a really meaningful time in my life. And when you say it was like a complicated time, and these are assumptions, so tell me if I'm wrong, but like you studied Latin American studies in school, you're now career is starting to like take off. You're doing it in a Latin country and you're going back and forth between Miami. Your career is taking off. And then meanwhile, you have this other very, very serious thing going on at home. Got to balance it. Yeah, that's exactly right. And to be clear or to be specific, you know, I had a conversation with my dad and my parents, like, should I just go on leave? Should I pause this and come home just to be with you? And, you know, it was my dad who was adamantly against it. He said, I'd be so uncomfortable with that. Your career is taking off right now. I don't want you to pause that just to come home to sort of watch me die. He said, it's wonderful to have you home as often as you can be, but I don't want you to just completely put your life on hold. So that's what I did. I just traveled back and forth really frequently. And what the experience was like for me, and this is one of the reasons why it was such a formative experience for me, what I learned through that, you know, dealing with that kind of impending loss is a really heavy thing. At the time, I was 26 when he died. I'd not yet met my husband or had kids. My dad was the person I loved most in the world. And so waking up every morning with the knowledge that the person you love is dying is heavy. But it taught me to be compassionate. I started to see the world and people in the world in kind of a different way and appreciate that like people carry things. People bring things, heavy things with them to work every day because I knew I was wrestling with that. Here I am trying to take on, I had this stretch role at the time, the biggest leadership role in my life. I'm trying to come into my own as a leader. And yet in my personal life, I'm carrying this really heavy thing that's impacting how I show up at work. So I had to navigate that and it was hard, but it gave me this incredible empathy and sense of compassion for the fact that people bring their personal lives to work every day. And were you doing that when you were coming into work every day? Were you sharing what was going on? I would even argue even today, it's still not like you're not supposed to do that kind of stuff. Were you sharing what was happening? Yes, for sure. For example, my boss at the time was incredibly supportive. He knew what was going on and I'd let him know like, hey, I'm going back to California and I'll be there for a period of time. And yes, I think the people closest to me knew that this was going on. You don't talk about it every day, but then there are also moments where I'd catch myself reacting to something, overreacting or getting emotional or just kind of having a moment of breaking down, which is part of dealing with this, you know, impending loss and grief. And so it was important that people knew what was going on. I have read, it was a note 20 years after his passing, and I've read it probably four times and I've cried four times in a row. So I'm going to try not to do it this time. I'm not going to read the note, but there was a few things that caught my attention about the note. Number one, we're both from UC Davis, which I thought was kind of cool. Right on. He was in the Navy. You're named after him, which I just thought was really cool. You said something that I wanted to ask you about. He preferred vacations over trips. What does that mean? It means that he preferred going to the beach or going to the mountains and not having an agenda and just having an opportunity to recharge versus a trip. 
for example, as a family, we took our first trip to Europe when I was in high school and it was planned and we had sightseeing activities and all of that. And I say that partly in jest because he would say it partly in jest, Mm -hmm. like he welcomed these opportunities to see Mm -hmm. the world. But at the same time, he was such a low key guy and he just wanted to recharge. He was also very much an introvert and very cerebral. And so recharging for him was, you know, just having some peace and quiet. So we used to joke as a family. Dad likes vacations, not trips. That's <laughs> <laughs> adorable. You said there's lessons learned after he passed. What changed for you? What I learned about having compassion for what people carry was a really big lesson for me. Number one. Number two, I knew that I enjoyed a very special relationship with my dad. He was my first mentor and coach in everything that I did. Mm-hmm. And I think that after he passed and as I had more conversations with people, I realized just how fortunate I was to have that special relationship with him. It got cut short, but it was a really special relationship. I also learned about the impact in seeing the way that people in his life reacted to his passing, the impact he had on people. So whether it was people he was with in the Navy who hadn't spoken to him in decades, but took the time to write him a letter or write his family a letter to express what an impact he had on them just because of his kindness, his integrity, his work ethic, seeing people from his work life come to services for him or take us aside and talk about what it was like to work for him, work with him. He was a senior guy in the Coopers and Library office in San Francisco and carried a lot of responsibility, had the corner office, so to speak. And someone said, oftentimes there was literally a line outside his office because people sought mentorship from him and he gave it to them. And I remember being so moved by that because I knew what an incredible mentor he was as a father and knowing that he showed up at work that way too. You know, it didn't surprise me, but it was very moving. And so it's a little bit like you get this view into how someone is remembered and then it gives you an opportunity to think, okay, what do I want to be remembered for? What kind of impact do I want to have? And no one talked about, oh, he achieved this level of revenue growth and the company did this and that, even though, of course, that's what he's striving for. The impact we all leave is the impact we have on people. And that was just so loud and clear as we navigated that experience. And so it really impacted how I want to show up um, and the impact I I have on uh, my team and on the industry. Did you feel a different sense of responsibility towards your family, your brother, your mother? How'd that change? Yes, yes, 100%. My dad was very much a rock in the family, kind of the problem solver. And I feel a similar responsibility in terms of my role in the family. And, you know, we have a small family. And so it just, when you go from four to three in your nuclear family, it changes things. And now, of course, you know, my brother and I, have we each have families of our own, but we're still very close after having gone through a difficult experience like that together. I appreciate you sharing. So there's a few things that I wanted to probe on with you, and it starts with Dartmouth. So number one you walked into Dartmouth with, let's say, some wind in your sails. Things were going pretty well. You were a very good swimmer. Were you on the Dartmouth swim team? For a brief period, yes. And that's a good story. Go ahead. Why don't you share it? It is a good story. I'll start with what you mentioned. So I went to Dartmouth from my public high school in the East Bay, Camp Lindo High School. And I was the only kid to go to Dartmouth in 10 years. Uh, I really didn't know anyone, but I was really excited to get out of California, try something new, go take my shot in the Ivy League. And I did have wind in my sails. I was valedictorian of my class. I was president of my class. I was captain of the swim team. Like I thought I had it all going on. And I walked into Dartmouth, walked onto the swim team. And about two months in, I got cut from the swim team. And rightfully so. Like I was not raising the game of the swim team. I was probably bottom third. But it was a hard conversation because that was a really big part of my identity at the time. And it was a very brief conversation. I remember the coach took me into her office and she said, we don't have a spot for you on the team. You're not fast enough. That was it. Full stop. Four second conversation. So, you know, swimming was my first love in life and it just ended like that. So that was hard. About the same time, I failed my first exam in college, like 32 out of 100. Letter home to my parents, epic fail. And again, keep in mind, I'm valedictorian of my class. I've never gotten anything less than an A in any class ever. My first exam in college, 32 out of 100. 
So those two experiences hitting right at the same time completely rocked my self-identity. I walked in there thinking like, I'm a great student, I'm a great athlete. And then it was like, Being a great student and a great athlete, did that come natural to you? I.e., were you the student that could walk into a test having just sat in a bunch of classes, retain every single word that the teacher said and not have to actually study for the test? No, I would say it was a combination. I knew I had some intelligence, but I could never do that. I had to study to a certain degree and I worked hard. I also had some natural talent in the pool, but I also worked hard. So it was always kind of a combination. What impresses me the most about this story, once you weren't fast enough for the swim team, you then decided to join the rowing team. And not only did you join the rowing team, you became captain of the rowing team. And not only did you stop failing classes, you graduated honors from Dartmouth. I was thinking about this. Had you ever rowed before? No, I don't think I'd ever heard of the sport before. I hadn't like seen it before. I grew up in California. I grew up with like swimming and water polo and of course football and soccer and baseball. I get to Dartmouth, it's like rowing and hockey and field hockey and lacrosse. Like I'd never seen these sports before. So it was totally new. But after I got cut from the swim team my freshman fall, I didn't do a sport through the winter and the spring. And I actually considered leaving Dartmouth in the winter. I was so down. I just thought I did not deserve to be there. I had major imposter syndrome. I'd been kicked off the swim team. I'd failed this test. And I just felt like, to be honest, there were a lot of kids who were more sophisticated than I was. I just started to feel like maybe my public school education didn't really get me as far as I thought. It didn't set me up for success. And I thought I was all that with all that I'd accomplished in high school. And look at me here, I'm failing. So I almost left. I called UC San Diego, closer to home, better weather. And I asked if they would still take me. And for a week or two, I seriously considered it. But I ended up staying on at Dartmouth. Thank goodness, because it was an incredible experience. But by my sophomore fall, I decided I wasn't ready to give up sports in my life. I love being an athlete. I love the structure of it. I love athletics and being part of a team. And so I walked on to the novice crew which is all freshmen, and then any stragglers like me. I was a sophomore. Crew in rowing parlance is the team. Yes. So here's the parlance. So it's a rowing team or it's a crew. You don't say like the rowing crew. I learned this the hard way, right? Because I didn't know any of this lingo. And you go to regatta to watch the teams. Row. And, and crew is not a verb. So you can't say I go. I went to the is it a regatta, regatta is it to a regatta? watch the team's crew. Right. Or a race. Yeah. Or a race. Yeah. Either one. So I walked on. I rode with the freshman my sophomore fall and I fell in love with the sport. It is a sport that you can pick up at age. You know, I was 18. I didn't know what the heck I was doing, but you can pick it up as long as swimming. It turns out was fantastic background for rowing because, you know, you're pretty fit. You're just in great um, shape. You're in great shape. You're used to getting up at five in the morning for practices and getting in, water. in cold water. Yeah. Exactly. So it was actually a great background and it was really fun. It was a great way to experience the Ivy League. Of course, you get to travel around and and row at all these different schools. And so I just felt like this, you know, kid from California who this was my ticket to see other Ivy League schools, et cetera. I didn't know anyone else. A lot of the other rowers like had gone to high school with the stroke of the Harvard boat or the, you know, the person in the Princeton boat. I didn't know anyone ever who had rowed crew, but it was a lot of fun. Why do you think they made you captain? And I don't mean to demean that they made you captain. Why do you think you earned the C on your jersey? Were you the best? I was not the best athlete. I was not made captain because I was the best athlete. You know, there actually were some very specific things going on at the time. The team was looking for leadership. We had concern about our coaching staff and their effectiveness, helping to coach us into the best team we could be. And I think they trusted me to have some hard conversations, which I did with the athletic department, with our coach. So I think they looked to me for that. So then you go to Jubin's favorite city. Give me the skinny on this time in your life. Let me give you the lead up to that time. So one of the reasons I joined Oracle coming out of Dartmouth, I came back to the Bay Area. I didn't want to stay in Boston or New York. I, I missed my California weather. And I came back out here, long story short, the tech companies were just starting to come onto the scene. And really what I was looking for was a company who had international operations and a great entry level training program, because I knew that I had a lot to learn. 
And I wanted the opportunity, kind of the option value, to move abroad and work abroad if I still had the bug after I got some initial experience. I knew I needed to get some financial footing. I had some debt from college and I really wanted to get some financial footing first and some experience. So I start out as an SDR at Oracle, age 21, and I'm about two years into the inside sales track and I really had the bug to work abroad and I really wanted to perfect my Spanish. I was a Spanish major, I'd written a big thesis in Spanish, but I knew that I wasn't so fluent in Spanish so as to be able to you know, navigate in any situation. All of the sayings, as you say, I knew I, I couldn't, I wasn't fluent in that way. So I found the managing director for Oracle's Argentina office. His name was Sebastian Gunningham, and I found his email address, and I emailed him. I'm 23 at the time, and I said, hi, I have two years experience here at Oracle. Here's what I've done. I'd really love to come down to Oracle Argentina and work for you. Is there anything I can do? And literally like an hour later, I'm sitting in my cubicle with my headset on, and a phone call comes in. I recognize the Argentina country code, and it was Sebastian. And he called me, and he said, hi, I'd love to talk to you. We're thinking about setting up an inside sales team here in Argentina. It doesn't exist. So I'd love to talk to you to see if you can help us do that. So long story short, I met with a couple people at headquarters that he knew who kind of vetted me. And I went down there and took this job. I'd never been to Buenos Aires. I did have a friend from college who was also moving down to Buenos Aires to work in banking. She was moving from New York. So we formed a little expat crew, which was really fun. And I went to work at Oracle Argentina. They were about 300 people at the time, so not an insignificant office. And my job was to hire SDRs and start this outbound and inbound kind of telemarketing function. And the idea for Sebastian was, look, she's gone through the school. Maybe she doesn't have managerial experience, but she at least knows what it takes what the corporate track is to go through in the States. And maybe she can kind of help us recreate that here. That's right. And ultimately, he took a bet on me. He said, I'm going to take this young, hungry individual, and I have this need, and I'm going to see if she can help us build this function. Really cool that you called and nailed him. It goes as well as you could have hoped. Is that fair to say? It went well, and... He got promoted about within my first year to run Latin America. So you hitched your wagon to the right person. So I hitched my wagon to the right person. I went moved down in 1997. He gets promoted probably 98. It's starting to be dot com. It's growth, growth, growth. He moved up to Miami. He said, I think we need to build a telesales operation for all of Latin America. Let's build it in Miami. We're going to bring in people from all different countries in Latin America into a call center in Miami. We're going to run it from there. Why don't you move up to Miami and build it? So when he offered me this role, now I'm going from managing like six very early in career SDRs to can you build a 100 person operation in Miami hire people in from 11 different countries, figure out H-1B visas, figure out an office location for us, figure out how to work with marketing to create demand. I'm 25 years old. I looked at him and I said, I don't have the experience to do this. And he said, I know you don't, but I know that you're hardworking and you're resourceful and you're going to figure it out. And I'm going to give you a couple people to lean on as resources. And so he had his ops person, for example, spend significant time with me. And he pointed me to other people around the company. But I share that experience because that was such a pivotal moment for me. Just a classic case of a leader being willing to make a bet on someone who's high potential, who hasn't done the job yet, but had some characteristics and take a big risk. It was a fantastic opportunity and experience for me. Folks like Sebastian and Jeff Sinclair, if you're listening, who's my Sebastian, are those that are the torchbearers for people like you or I that then it gives us permission to make those same bets. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I think about that all the time as I I look around my organization and I think, okay, who's the undiscovered, not yet potential fully realized talent that we should think about for this role and that role and moving abroad and growing this new function. It's a fantastic opportunity all around. It's what it's all about. It is the feeling where sometimes when I'm laying in bed at night thinking about how lucky I am with what I do and how much I enjoy my job, it's the one feeling I'll never have, which is building a team and believing in someone that doesn't see it in themselves like I didn't see it in myself. And boy, was I confident 
and I had all the self-belief that I could possibly need, but I never saw it and I never was just thrown into it until I was. And when I was, it was on, like it was so on. And I'll never forget the feeling of the chip on my shoulder. I felt indebted. I felt like there was no way I could let him down for making that bet on me. And I think that's why the bet works because the person that's making it on you, you just owe it to them to do everything in your power to prove them right. Yeah, that's a great point. That's a really great point. I love that. It actually kind of reminds me of, uh, so I had the CRO of Brex, employee number seven on the show, Sam Blonde. They have a rule at Brex where there is no recruiters at the company. Everybody is referred. And the reason they do that is because when you are referred in by somebody else within the company, they've seen a meaningfully tick up in performance of that person because they know that somebody else inside the organization stuck their neck out for them. That's interesting. And it makes a difference. Yeah. Anyway, kind of a weird analogy. I love it. No, it's great. You spent a long time at Oracle. That's a long run, like 16 years. Do you think about quitting? Not really, to be honest with you. I mean, in this example of the opportunity I had in Latin America as a perfect example, I kept having these fantastic learning opportunities to work for great people, just learn so much, build my experience that it was never boring. And I started there when I was 21. So you also, there was like this emotional attachment for me. I felt very much a part of the place. And I knew that I had mentors and sponsors around the company. And so until 15, 16 years in, you know, I was totally satisfied. And then I started to look around. They kept giving you more. They kept giving you more and more opportunity. They continued to take bets on you. Yes. And not to fast forward, but I would argue, and I've said this before on the show, but I think you're a good leader. Don't get me wrong. I think you're really good at the X's and O's of the tactics of your job. However, I think that you've proven yourself so much over time that you get the best pick of the litter for the opportunities that you can go work for. So like Confluence or whatever it is. And as a result, your decision-making criteria is high growth. And the reason people would come work for you is because there's no way that you can take the amount of bets that you want to on people, unless the company is growing in the way that Oracle did when you were there. Otherwise, there's just limited capacity to move so many people up. Is that fair, or am I just making a complete assumption about you? No, you uh, you wanna do both. You wanna bring in great talent from the outside. You also wanna develop talent Mm -hmm. internally. I feel so passionately about that, in part because of what I experienced and benefited from at Oracle. And I think that in growth tech companies, many companies aren't doing leadership development. Some of us at Confluent, we're finding our footing on this. And it's something that I've prioritized from the beginning because we wanna have a culture where we're developing leaders from within. Of course, we're also hiring from the outside. But the developing from within can be really powerful too. So we're definitely doing both. You know, overall, it was such a great experience to learn from so many great operating leaders. And so I had the benefit of working with just incredible operating leaders. I mentioned Sebastian, Hillary Coppola McAdams, Matt Mills, Keith Block, Thomas Curian. Like I just got to work with them and see how they operate and how they do what they do. So it was a great school for me. The other thing that was a great opportunity in terms of navigating my career at Oracle was taking these riskier bets. My journey at Oracle was not up and to the right and kind of bigger, bigger, bigger organizations all the time. I found different opportunities to build things and sometimes choosing the next opportunity, like coming out of Latin America where I'm running this group of a hundred people and I moved back to the Bay Area, I wanted to work for Hillary Coppola McAdams. I took a role as her right-hand person where I was an individual contributor and everyone around me told me I was crazy. You don't give up revenue responsibility or headcount responsibility at Oracle, like that's your currency. But I did it because she was a leader I wanted to attach myself to. I kind of bet on myself again to earn bigger responsibility over time. So I just share that because I think sometimes those of us at growth tech companies look at the talent in big tech and paint it all with one broad brush and say, oh, it's all running things at scale. But there are actually a lot of builders within these big companies. And then the nice thing is all the times that I did fall on my face, which I did because I was trying new things or building out something for the first time, you're surrounded by people who are invested in you. So there's people there to help you because you've built a brand at the company, et cetera. 
Previous guest of the show, friend and just incredible, incredible person, Dan Shapiro, COO of LinkedIn, formerly CBO of LinkedIn, has been there for 17 years since the early, early vintage of what LinkedIn was as a startup. It's my favorite story. He had a huge, thousands of people sales organization, young age, doing great. And he went on a walk with Jeff Weiner, the CEO at the time, around LinkedIn campus. And Jeff, I'm ready. I'm ready to go. I want more responsibility. And basically, Jeff said, I don't think you know what you're asking for. And I certainly don't think you've developed the rudimentary skill set to be able to take the next leap. And Dan said, what are you talking about? And basically, the point that Jeff went on to make was that breadth, not depth, matters as the ultimate leader, even if you're a CRO. So Dan went from thousands of people under his org, and I love that you use the word as his currency, you know, cash that in. And he was an individual PM. He became an IC on the on the wow. product management team. That's amazing. Built that team, and then now is ultimately one of the leaders that I just. I totally respect. agree with that. By the way, that the breadth really matters, and it's not like the breadth in that lateral move. You know, that incremental experience matters in the immediate next job. It might not matter till a couple jobs down the line, but it really matters. So I, I think that's a great story. And I think you don't see it because in sales, it's very one block on top of the other. You hit a quarter, then you hit a year, then you hit two years, then you become a, you know, AVP, then an RVP and then an SVP. It's almost like sometimes you're running the dirt road and you don't give yourself the chance to see the trails that yeah. are kind of coming up That's on the right. side of the road. That's right. And you don't know when it's going to happen. That's right. You're just so focused on going ahead that you just kind of miss them all. Yeah. Some of the most valuable experience for me were those years after I came back from Latin America, working for Hillary, who I mentioned, I had the responsibility for sales ops and strategy for the organization. And it gave me insight into planning, capacity planning, quota modeling, and interlocking with all these different teams around the company. So I really got it kind of a director level. I got to sit as her right hand and get visibility into how you run a bigger organization. It really played out as valuable for me once I took, say, a CRO job. Then I realized, oh, okay, this is how this whole aspect, of course, you're going to you know, bring in a great strategy and ops leader anyway, but it has really helped to have had that direct experience. Fast forward a few years, you joined a company at, uh, called New Relic. This was in, I think the dates matter here. So this was in 2014. It was pre-IPO doing several hundred million of revenue. It was not an enterprise business, but your title, if I'm not mistaken, when you joined was the SVP of global enterprise sales, which is not lost on me. Why did you choose, having had a pretty good run over the last 18 years of your career, why did you choose the opportunity to go build an enterprise team and take the business up market rather than probably the other dirt trails that had appeared for you? I'd just love to hear more. Yeah, sure. So that's right. When I joined in 2014, as you say, the business was sub 100 million. It was mostly SMB that pioneered this product-led growth, which I don't think we were using the term at the time, but kind of a freemium model, developer-led, and most of the early customers were SMB. Slack was just coming up at the same time. Yeah. Yep. Were SMB, first purchase on a credit card, self-service, or maybe kind of a light touch from the sales team. And they had some enterprise customers, but not a deliberate enterprise motion. Might be a developer at GE had put something on a credit card. Oh, look, GE's a logo. But we didn't really have an enterprise motion. So my job was to come in and build the enterprise sales team and segment for the company. And the New Relic at the time was preparing to go public. We went public in December of 2014. And the promise we made to the street was that we would be viable in the enterprise market. I think at the time when I joined, we were maybe 20, 25% of the revenue was enterprise. By that time I left, it was maybe 65% and we had pretty meaningful business in the enterprise. So that was kind of the dynamics. But and the, I think you're being modest, but you had more than 50% of the Fortune 100. We did. By the time you left. Yeah, we had a, a really robust enterprise business. So it was a great run. But your question about why did I choose that one? So a couple things. This was not my first move out of Oracle. My first move out of Oracle, I'd left two years earlier and I went to Live Person. And I joined, I was attracted to it because of the size and stage and scale. I think they were maybe 120, 130 million when I joined. It was an opportunity to run global sales and ultimately services and success as well. I was coming from the CRM space at Oracle. They were in kind of a tangential space, you know, digital engagement. And I joined the company and it was my first 
time reporting to a founder CEO and being the you know most senior go-to-market leader in the company. And I learned a few things. It's a hard transition. Even if you're a great sales VP or even a product line VP within a bigger company, it is very different when all of a sudden you're the top go-to-market leader in the company and the buck stops with you on everything. What's our segment strategy? How should we design comp plans? How should we prioritize things on the product roadmap? What do you need for marketing? And it took me a while to really get my footing around having a strong point of view and making decisions, strategy decisions and prioritization decisions. Like a company that size and all of our growth tech companies, it's all about ruthless prioritization because you can't do everything at once. And so two years into that experience, by the way, I was also traveling back and forth to New York all the time. The company was headquartered in New York. I had two kids under four and the travel was, it just, it wasn't working. How often were you traveling? A lot, a lot. And my husband could go on and on with you about what that experience was like. It was a hard time. My former boss from Oracle days had called, she just landed at New Relic. She said, this is a really amazing company. I think they're going to do great things. Do you want to come work for me? So the question for me was, okay, I'm going from being a CRO at Live Person to working for a CRO at New Relic. Why would I do that? And of course, a lot of my mentors, you know, around people that I called said, why would you do that? And I said, I'll be honest with you. I think I still have a few more things to learn. I'm not sure that I'm ready to be a great CRO. And so I took that job and I grew the enterprise business. And then a couple of years in, I ended up earning the CRO spot at New Relic. But it was a kind of a controversial decision in some people's eyes. Why? Because back to you've already had that title. Like, why would you give up, you know, the currency of you've already done it? And I just I I felt like I had a few more things to learn. Very cool. A birdie told me that you had your team read a book. It was a rowing book called Boys in the Boat. Yeah. What is that and why? So we talked about my experience with rowing. And one of the things that I love about rowing is that it's like the ultimate team sport. You know, there are no heroes in a boat. And we rowed in eight, so eight rowers and a coxswain, so nine people in the boat. There are no heroes. And the best performing boats collect all these athletes, the best athletes, you get in the boat together. And in order to be a truly standout, high performing crew, you really have to meld together and it's give and take. So you may be the strongest athlete in the boat, or you may be the stroke of the boat, but if you're not getting the best out of everyone in the boat and really working together as a team, you're not going to win. So I just love that metaphor of give and take across a team to be a truly high performing team. And then, of course, Boys in the Boat is just, have you ever read it? No. Oh, my God. It's an amazing story. It's an incredible story. It's a true story about these rowers during the Depression era, these boys who go to the University of Washington. And, you know, many of them have never rowed before. They end up on the crew. And most of them are very poor, again, because it's during the Depression. And they. It's real. It's real. It's like a story of the human spirit at the end of the day, what these boys find through the sport of rowing. And then they're working towards the 1936 Olympics in Germany. It, it's amazing. It's I'll incredible. It. You I'll have read to read it. it. Send you it's my, so powerful. I'll send you what I think. Yes. Highly recommend. Speaking of real stories, tell me if this is true or not. But I also heard that during your time at New Relic, you had a SCO, a sales kickoff. And the theme of it was about a fella named Roger Bannister. Is that true or was there a session? It wasn't a that? theme. I just told the story because his is an incredible story. Do you know the Roger Bannister story? No. Four minute mile? Yeah, no. He was the first person to run a four minute mile. And everyone had said it's impossible for humans to run sub four minute mile, et cetera, et cetera. And he's the first person to do it. And then after he does it, more people followed. And I think within the same year, a couple of years, several more people broke the four minute mile mark. And so it's just this story of like how we have in our heads, this notion of what's impossible. And then somebody goes and does it. And then all of a sudden other people can go do it. And so I just find stories like that incredibly inspiring. And I think we're faced with moments like that in our companies and on our teams all the time where people say, no, 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 this is impossible. You can never go from down market to up market. You can never go up market, down market. You can never do this. You can never do that. And I think that's part of the fun of being in these growth tech companies because you can do the impossible. When you joined New Relic, the competitive landscape looked very different when you joined than when you left. Yeah, that's right. The market changed dramatically. 
completely out of your control, to be totally honest. Like it just kind of happened. Datadog came onto the scene and they started not only eating what I think of, and this is just my own personal opinion, New Relic's lunch, but everybody's lunch. They ate Splunk's lunch. It was serious. It still is serious. They're doing some pretty hardcore damage. I imagine that is humbling and a good reminder. You were probably really proud of the team that you built. You kept getting all these promotions. But there's still like, man, in this valley, things change fast. And you had a really good run there. You spent four or five years there, right? Five and a half. And the whole time wasn't ripping. Competition came. That's right. No, it's very real. And I think, and that is very true. New Relic had a very early lead. And then in any good category where there's a market need, competitors will emerge and they might come at it and solve the problem in a slightly different way. Datadog started with infrastructure monitoring. New Relic had started with application monitoring. And I think it's so important, and I saw this at Oracle too in the early days of SaaS, it's so important to stay paranoid and stay humble and assume that if your business is ripping because there's a great market opportunity, competitors will emerge and you don't know where they're going to come from. Sometimes it's the small upstart that just gains traction and potentially escape velocity. Sometimes it's a bigger company that has leverage and distribution reach that gets into your market. But I think it's so important. You should assume that competitors are going to come in and really be thinking ahead in terms of how you're going to deal with that. I know, because I know a bunch of people that were there, even on the leadership team, some of your peers, there was a major transition that the business had to take on, one of which was the way that it was priced. That threw everybody for a loop. The underlying market conditions have completely shifted based on all the assumptions that we have made about the market when it started. Like, it's just different. It's like if a non-cloud native company is now re-architecting for the cloud. Usually the cloud company is going to win because they have a native set of assumptions that they can wrap around whatever the underlying infrastructure is. I guess this is my long-winded point or question, I should say, of like, you stuck through it for some time. New Relic went through a significant business model transformation after I left. Some of the groundwork was laid during the time I was there, but that transformation has happened since I've left. Mm -hmm. It's super impressive. Part of what has been happening in the industry, particularly in infrastructure software, is customers want usage-based models. And that's ultimately what Neurelic transitioned to and very consumption-oriented. And that's the model that Confluence building as well, product-led, consumption-oriented. And to your point, these cycles happen so fast that a company born five or seven years earlier might not have built that in to the business model or into the product. And then a company that's born today has the opportunity to architect from the beginning, being cloud native or being usage-based, et cetera. And so that's what's going on. You know, We've gone through these major transitions in the industry from the old perpetual license model and on-premise to subscription and in the SaaS model, but that was really sold in the same way as perpetual license software. Now, particularly in the infrastructure space, the default is this consumption-based model and making the most of product-led growth as part of your strategy. So that's where we're focused at Confluent, and that's the big transformation that New Relic went through. It's why I have the ultimate respect for founders, because the world changes very often, and they can't go anywhere forever. I think Larry's still at Oracle, right? Like Jay is the same thing. You're, Jay's your boss now at Confluent, right? Yes. The market will change in five years that's for right. Confluent. Yeah, that's you know? right. Just like it will change for Datadog, just like it changed for Facebook. Like you can see this. And why I like founders being a part of the business, which is why I thought it was interesting that you had your first go of reporting to a founder at Live Person and then now having it again at Confluent. Well, but to be clear, in my now approaching 27 years in this industry, I've only worked for founder CEO-led companies. Wow. But at Oracle, I never worked directly for Larry Ellison. And then I left Oracle 10 years ago, and this is the third founder CEO I've worked for. But 27 years, founder-led companies. That's why I do think I have the greatest job in the world. There is something so magnetic about that person because it's crazy. It is crazy to do that because of all of the risk that you're taking and you're going down with the ship. Like you're going down one way or another. I'm really happy that there's people that do that. Yes, It's really good. It's good for all of us. It is, it's amazing. Okay, so Jay is the CEO of this company called Confluence. That's right. He is the 
founder. It was founded in 2014. You want to know a fun fact? It was spun out of LinkedIn. And LinkedIn was the first investor. It was a 500K investment from LinkedIn. When I read this, I emailed Emily Choi, who's the president of Coinbase now, at the time was running all M&A, corp dev at LinkedIn. And I said, did you do this? And she said, technically speaking, I executed it. But it was Kevin Scott, who is the CTO of LinkedIn's at the Times, idea to do it. So they did 500K, turned out to be pretty good for them. And following their investment, Benchmark came in and did the Series A, then came Sequoia, Index, maybe Sequoia again, Co2. That's right. Pretty cool cap table. Pretty cool board. Yes. Um, Awesome board. Can you take 30 seconds to tell me what Confluent does? Yeah. So Confluent sets data in motion. And what does that mean? Well, more and more data needs to be real time. Some of the estimates are that 25% of all data in the next couple of years is going to be real time. And companies need a data infrastructure, data architecture that can serve real-time data, real-time customer applications, real-time company operations. And so we are a data streaming platform that enables data to be streamed in real-time around your company to serve these different needs. And why do companies care about this? Well, it's probably because when Jubin is waiting for his dinner to be delivered and I'm refreshing my app like a crazy person and it still says they're at the store, where really they're at my front door, maybe they should be using Confluence. That's right. Well, a lot of food delivery services do. Instacart is a fantastic customer of ours, but you're right, whether it's food delivery, whether it's real-time, real-time inventory, you wanna make sure when you place an order that actually that thing is in stock and it can get to you. Banking is our largest vertical, so all kinds of applications like real-time fraud detection, those texts that you get. Okay, but can you tell them they never do it right? <laughs> Every time I like use my debit card for something, whatever it is, I get a decline. I'll work on that. Okay, I'll see you. what I can do. All right, thank you. What I like about this business, well, I should say what everybody likes about this business, including the street, is that the way that it's been built from the ground up by Jay and the team Think of it as like a wrapper built around an open source solution called Kafka. Kafka is basically this open source thing, which is different from other companies. It's almost all contributed by the company. So most of the code base is contributed by Confluence. Manages it, delivers it, whatever. That's right. And so you've basically built this incredible service around this open source technology that so many enterprises are just using today. That's right. Kafka has seen incredible adoption in the market. And the majority of the commits to the open source code base are coming from Confluent. So we have the best Kafka expertise in-house at Confluent, which is amazing and great value to our customers. And then, as you say, we've built a platform around Kafka, which really serves developers. We've built the platform that takes it into the enterprise. And specifically, we've built a cloud-managed service over the last couple of years. And that's our fastest growing product because people don't want to self-manage a big Kafka cluster. They have other things they need their engineers to do. And it's complicated. This is not an easy deployment. Like This is serious data infrastructure stuff. This is like meaningful to the business too. It is. Well, it's an architecture decision. And ideally the first decision, we talk a lot about the data in motion customer journey. How do customers actually adopt this? It typically starts with a developer experimenting with this new capability with Kafka or maybe directly with Confluent Cloud. And then maybe they'll build an app or they'll deploy Kafka or Confluent in an app. And then they start to realize, oh, wait a minute, there's a flywheel effect I can get, kind of a network effect. If I pull this data into this app, and now I'm streaming it and it more data begets more apps, begets more data. And it starts to become a data streaming, data in motion architecture for the company that sits alongside the traditional data architecture, which is data at rest, right? Mm-hmm. Data stored in databases and data warehouses that people query, mm-hmm. et cetera. But now, as I mentioned, so much data is needed in real time for all these different use cases, including analytics. It needs to be streamed in real time. It kind of reminds me of when you joined New Relic and GE was a customer. But someone at GE was randomly using New Relic, but there was a whole lot of work that needed to be done to make that organization successfully adopting the product. 
That's right. New Relic was my first foray into infrastructure software. I'd come from the apps world and I'd naively come to believe that the world ran on packaged software. And then I got to New Relic and learned about all of this custom dev going on and all these, the infrastructure world. And what was so exciting about it was a couple of things. One, the biggest disruption in enterprise tech is happening in these infrastructure layers. And so the New Relics, the confluence of the world, the cloud providers, super exciting place to be. Second, as you mentioned, it really brings an opportunity for a new selling motion that follows the customer adoption motion, which as you say, it starts developer led and product led. And so you have to think about how can we make our products so easy to discover, to acquire, to onboard, to adopt. And how can we do that in a way that requires the least amount of intervention from a sales team as possible? So you do that and you try and get that bottoms up adoption. Then you marry that with all the goodness of enterprise sales. You know, how do you come in and communicate with an economic buyer? How do you present value? How do you achieve more of an architectural technical win? for example, and you marry that with this organic developer adoption and that's where the magic happens. So I learned the power of those combined selling motions at New Relic. And I was really determined that in my next role, it would also be in the infrastructure world because I just think it's so exciting. It is so exciting. I finally got the third head of the three-headed data infrastructure beast, Snowflake, Databricks, and Confluent now had Chris Degnan, the CRO, then Andy, now finally you. Fantastic! So I'm very, very excited. Congratulations! About that. Thank you. Trifecta. Thank you. Thank you. The last private funding round that you all did was at four and a half. That was in 2020. That's billion to be clear. That was after raising a 250 million dollar Series E. In June of 2021, you IPO'd. So eight months ago, and today it is today being mid-February of 2022, it is close to a $14.3 billion valuation. So street loves what you're doing. When you met Jay, the CEO and founder, he's notoriously reserved and whip smart. And I'm saying nerdy in the most complimentary way. We only invest in nerds basically at Kleiner. It's kind of a key facet of somebody that we look for. We love the product led, really, really smart technical person because we can surround him with resources to help bring that to market. You know, what'd you think? What were you looking for? Were there any reservations, no pun intended, that you had as you think about how you could work with a profile like that? No, when I first met Jay, I liked him a lot when I first met him. It was the classic, I wasn't looking for a different operating role. He was allegedly looking for a board member. That's how the conversation started. That's kind of a little trick that people play, by the way. So we had a conversation, I really liked him, but I wasn't looking. And you kind of have to be in that headspace of like, I'm open to a new opportunity. So it wasn't until a couple months later that we had started having more serious conversations, but there were a few things I liked about him from the get-go. So as you say, he's whip smart. He was very clear on the technology, the problem it solved in the market, and the opportunity that solving that problem represented. I asked him, for example, he explained what the technology did. I drew on my former Oracle database days to really understand what Kafka and Confluent did. And then I asked him, I said, well, how big of a company can this be? And he didn't miss a beat and he just deadpanned. He looked at me and he said, well, we will be bigger than Oracle. I thought, okay. And then he went on to explain. It wasn't just a brash, chest beating, we're going to be this big company. He went on to break down logically why that's true. I thought, okay, I like how this guy's thinking. And he was very comfortable with sort of the long game to get there. And here's how we're going to build this amazing company. You know, he's incredibly humble. And at the same time, incredibly driven and ambitious. It's a really powerful combination. So that's something that I really like from the get-go. And there's a number of things that I really value about partnering with Jay. One of them is I feel like he strikes a really great balance between having a strong point of view, but also giving me room 
to run my function and bring my expertise to bear. Where we meet is often around the customer journey and I'll go to him for insights on help me really understand how this journey is happening on the customer side, how the adoption of this technology is happening so that I can make sure we have the right messaging and sales motions, et cetera, to map to that. And so that's where we bring our expertise together. That's one of the areas that he just strikes a great balance between having a strong point of view, but also really being willing to give me agency and learn I have heard you say that one of the shifts that you had to make when you joined Confluent and you were firmly seated at the executive table was being able to speak a different language to boards. You know, you said you had to seek out some coaches to help make that transition, get some resources. Seems like you've made that well. And can I tell you something that Matt Hines said to me about you as a board member? And I think it ties this together nicely. I said, what was she like in board meetings? And I said, I wonder if her perspective has changed now that she's done it on one side of the table. And he said, she has an incredible grasp of the big picture. When I spent time with Erica, she asked me a lot of questions about what type of support I'm getting from other functions, like marketing or finance. I think she's asked me about AE attainment at almost every board meeting we've had. And we spend a lot of the time discussing entire customer life cycles, the experience, priorities and ownership. She's incredible. Oh, that's great. He's awesome. He's doing a fantastic job. And it feels like you've figured out the transition. Yeah, no, it is a transition. You're right. Where I had to learn it was first at New Relic. That's where I first started regularly attending board meetings, presenting to the board, et cetera. And that's a learning journey. I'll speak for myself, learning to speak the board's language because they're operating with a different set of KPIs than we as go-to-market leaders live in every day. And for example, as a go-to-market leader, you're running pipeline and forecast and sales process and sales stages and customer pitch decks and things like that. And then you get into the board and it's all about performance of the portfolio and it's NRR and it's rep productivity and rep attainment and a different set of metrics that you realize you have to transition yourself to focusing on those things in addition to kind of running execution. And so I I went through that learning transition, I would say at New Relic, where I had to like study before the board meetings. And I was nervous because this wasn't the language I was using every day. And then you realize that like with anything, practice gets you a lot more comfortable. And so, yeah, now I've gotten a lot more comfortable with it. And I live in those metrics more now in my role at Confluent and with my team, because it's really important to how we run the business. But I think it's a learning journey. Anyone thinking about making the transition from VP of sales to CRO, for example, thinking about how do I make that pivot to really live in the board level metrics and speak that language is important. The other thing I'd say, and I think you and I talked about this before, As the go-to-market executive, you don't naturally have advisors and coaches, so you have to seek them out. And the metrics that you're talking about, some of them are public metrics. So like when you become a public company, you'll be talking about them. Some of them are not. Some of them are private metrics and confidential metrics. So what that means is you're looking for benchmarking information of like, how is my sales productivity or my ramp time? You have to seek it out yourself. So you have to build your own network of peers that you can tap into as advisors. Whereas for the public metrics, the CFO can get input from investors and from the sell side analysts and bankers, et cetera, to get benchmark data for those different metrics and just read earnings reports. As the CRO or go-to-market president, you have to seek some of that out on your own. As we talked about too, a lot of the folks you've had on your show They've been colleagues of mine or peers of mine. At, we all we know each other to yeah. a large degree because we're all hitting each other up in the background for, hey, what's your ramp time for enterprise reps internationally? Or how are you thinking about demand gen? And what do you get from marketing? What are you guys doing yourself? We all have Did to tap into really each other. Did you really ask you that question on the podcast? Yeah, totally, <laughs> totally. Okay, a couple more and then I got to let you go. I've heard you say that you still try to stay connected with as many reps as your schedule allows. How do you do that? And can I give you a quick story before I let you go? I had a fella named Tom Mendoza on the show. Do you know who Tom is? I know who he is. I don't know him personally. Legend. Took NetApp from, call it a couple of million of revenue to NetApp. Amazing. Amazing. And an unbelievable leader. He used to make, I think, 100 calls a week to his team. And he used to have a saying called, catch someone doing something right. 
And when somebody else on the team would catch you doing something right, they would send Tom a text and say, this person did this. And that afternoon, without fail, no matter how busy he was, he would call them and say, thank you. I love it. That's awesome. That's fantastic. It's so important. It's so important. I try to do a lot of that. I feel like I could do so much more, but I'm a big believer in the call people out of the blue don't schedule time, mm-hmm. just slack them or call them out of the blue and ideally catch them, you know, doing something great. We just had our kickoff last week. I'm trying to dole out the thank yous to everyone who contributed to that. Or in the end of a quarter, the end of a, a fiscal year, who can you call to thank? And of course, the rep and the SC who bring an incredible deal over the line, but also the people who work in the deal desk or on the legal team. I think it's so important to give out that gratitude because people work really hard really, really hard and they want to do a good job and even a simple 10 minute phone call. They want to feel noticed. They want to see, be heard. They, they want to be dignified in their work. Especially salespeople. Like they're very proud people. They like the recognition. That's And like, anyone associated with the sales team, absolutely. right? Associated with putting up the numbers. 100%. I always end these the same way. It's the only question that I think you know I'm going to ask you. What does grit mean to you? Well, grit to me is, it is passion and perseverance. I mean, I love the book Grit and I loved kind of learning more about the concept. To me though, what is, how do we apply that? What does that mean? It's kind of the willingness to do hard things. Sometimes you choose them. Sometimes they choose you. But I think the willingness to do hard things, and for me, grit is also a muscle. You can build it up over time and then grit becomes a source of confidence because you find yourself in a situation where you say, okay, this looks really hard but you know that you can fall back on your grit to find a way through it. I'm going to assume you're hiring pretty much everywhere. Yes. Is that a fair assumption? That's a fair assumption. In that vein, is there any particular roles that you are hiring for right now that you want to shout out? You can play favorites if you want. Name them. Name them. (laughs) All over the place. We're hiring everywhere. Confluent is growing. What's the best way to get a hold of you or apply? You listen to this. You're fired up. You want to be the one that gets taken a bet on. 100%. Track me down on LinkedIn. Send me a note. I will respond. We are hiring everywhere. We're building something great. We have an amazing company, amazing culture, and it's a great place to learn and grow. So come join us. Erica, thank you. Thanks, Jubin. This has been fun. That's it. Thanks for listening. If you're just discovering the podcast, we have a lot more episodes from organizations like Snowflake, Twilio, Slack, LinkedIn, Box, etc. If you want to keep up or support the show, the best way to do so is by following us on Spotify, subscribing on Apple and leaving a review. Also, we love feedback. So feel free to email us grit at kleinerperkins.com.